Hello, I'm Ben Horton, and welcome back to Career at the Crossroads, a Chatham House mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Over the course of five episodes, all published this week, John Nelson Wright, the Career Foundation Fellow in the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House, has been exploring the strategic relations of Korea, asking how the country is seeking to protect its interests in an increasingly contested Pacific region. In this, the final episode, John is joined by Yuhai Cecilia Chung, the Deputy Director General of the ASEAN and Southeast Asian Affairs Bureau in the Korean Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They discuss how the Republic of Korea is positioning itself within the key organisations and alliances of the region, and what the Korean government's priorities are in an increasingly contested international context. I hope you enjoy listening. Celia, welcome and thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us today. We are really looking to try and drill down a bit and talk about how Korea sees itself in this really important region and also perhaps to talk broadly about what I might characterise as South Korea's role as a policy entrepreneur because one of the things that's very striking when you look at the history of 20th and 21st century diplomacy by the Republic of Korea is how much effort has been put into developing broad policy concepts. One thinks back to the 1990s and the Kim Jong-sam administration with its focus on globalization, segue ha, or the efforts uh, under President Im Young-bak to talk about a new Asia initiative, or former President Park with her Eurasia initiative in 2013 and institutional innovations such as NAPSI and MICTA. And now we have, of course, with President Moon since 2017, a focus on the so-called new Southern policy. It's been very striking that I think President Moon is the first president to have visited all 10 ASEAN countries, which is a very striking illustration of the amount of diplomatic commitment. And back in 2019, of course, there was the 30th anniversary of ASEAN ROK relations with a big conference in Busan. At the heart of this seems to be a focus on people, prosperity and peace. And that's a very attractive slogan. I wonder whether you could sort of start by telling us a little bit about how you would define the new Southern policy and particularly why it's emerged now. You started in 2017. What's what's the genesis, if you like, of this really important regional initiative? Thank you, John. I'm very impressed with your background knowledge on Korea's foreign policy initiative so far. So as you mentioned, President Moon Jae-in is actually the first Korean president to visit all 10 Southeast Asian countries during the first two years of his presidency, actually, and also India. So our partners for our new Southern policy. So just to explain very briefly about the new Southern policy, where this is really not a break from our previous policies. We've always placed tremendous importance on our partnership with our Southeast Asian partners. And what it does at this juncture is it puts really our South and Southeast Asian neighbors front and center of Korea's foreign policy focus. And while we've always valued our partnership with these countries, it's really the first time we've given it a name, a brand, if I may say so. 
And it shows really the level of commitment to the policy that's coming from the highest level of government. I think it's worth mentioning that this focus is not a break from our previous policies, but really a culmination of Korea's longstanding and close relationship with our ASEAN partners and India. With our ASEAN partners in particular, we've enjoyed, as you mentioned, three decades of extremely friendly and cooperative relations across a wide spectrum from robust trade and investment to people to people exchange and cultural exchanges. ASEAN is Korea's second largest trading partner. It was since 2019 and remains so. Korea's investment in ASEAN countries doubled to $10 billion just in the three years leading up to 2019, making ASEAN South Korea's third largest overseas investment destination after the U.S. and the European Union. The ASEAN region is also the most visited destination for Korean nationals, and the visitors between ASEAN and Korea peaked at around 14 million in 2019. With India, although the figures are more modest, uh, we feel there is a lot of potential that we still haven't tapped into. So to put simply, I would say the new Southern policy is an effort on our part to diversify Korea's foreign policy strategy, both economically and in terms of building on what we call the middle power diplomacy in the region. On the economic front, you describe ASEAN as the second largest trading partner for the Republic of Korea and the third largest investment direction. Can you give us some sense of the scale? Because obviously the ROK-China trade relationship is huge, even if in its ranking ASEAN is large. Quantitatively, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Is this seen as in some ways an alternative, in a credible sense, for dependence on the China market, especially you know, post-COVID, during COVID, there's been a lot of questioning about the supply chain dependence on the Chinese market. To what extent is focusing on ASEAN uh, seen as a direct alternative to that reliance on the China market? I think the realization that putting all of our eggs in one basket is quite dangerous, especially in times of disruption, such as the COVID, the pandemic, or uh, the intensifying competition between superpowers. And I think this realization came really towards uh, the middle of 2017, when we felt the economic repercussions of relations with China that came from China's concerns with the deployment of the thought system mm. here in Korea. And ever since the fallout, shall I say, economically from that relationship, I think Korean businesses have become very cognizant that maybe there should be more diversification on their part as well. And there are other factors as well, uh, such as growing labor costs in China, the cost of doing business. That also became a concern. And we saw a lot of businesses in the early 2000s and the decade spanning that period, uh, where a lot of Korean businesses actually moved their production facilities to other Southeast Asian countries, Vietnam definitely being the number one country that saw the switch from China. 
And so when you look at the figures, I think it is actually among the 10 Southeast Asian countries, it is quite uneven. And there are concerns that most of our economic interests or investments are focused on Vietnam. And so there are voices from our Southeast Asian partners in particular, calling for a more balanced approach to investing in Southeast Asia. So that is something that we are working on also under the new Southern policy, as well as addressing concerns on the part of Southeast Asian countries that there is a growing trade deficit that is benefiting Korea and not the other way around. And so while there are some minor adjustments that need to be made, this is a trend that has taken place since a decade ago, actually, that has seen companies move away from China as an alternative and finding Southeast Asian countries as an alternative um, and attractive places for doing business. That's really interesting. And I was struck by the linkage, if you like, between the question of China's response to that deployment and the perception of political pressure. Some people have also alluded to the fact that when it comes to soft power, China sometimes wields its soft power through, for example, tourism. We've seen big fluctuations in the number of Chinese tourists going to Seoul, or perhaps more importantly, to Jeju. Is there a concern in political as well as corporate circles in South Korea that there is a risk that China will use economic leverage to try and constrain what South Korea can do politically, whether it's through tourism or restricting the ability of South Korean retailers like Lotte, for example, to have a stable presence in the Chinese market? Well, I think there are certainly concerns in the corporate world where the pain was felt very much. But we maintain very good relations with China and we need to maintain very good relations with China politically because we're extremely dependent on China in the economic sector. And we also uh, need to cooperate with China in order to realize the peace on the Korean Peninsula. So they're a very valuable partner that we need to work with very closely, very cautiously. But I do think that the pain was felt uh, very acutely by the business sector. That leads me to the sort of next question that I wanted to ask as a follow-up, which is you talked about Korea's identity as middle power. And I suppose we can think about that identity in three ways, size, geography, and also, if you like, identity politics or ideology, the big political questions. Where does Korea fit in in the Western alliance framework? And now we see, of course, under the new US administration, under President Biden, both a reassuring re-emphasis of the importance of alliances, but also a lot of talk about values. And of course, with China being an authoritarian regime, and some states in Southeast Asia having strong democratic traditions, but others less, obviously, it's interesting to ask where in this mix, when you look at the new Southern policy, does the politics fit in? I'm thinking, for example, of ASEAN's own position on the idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific Where, for example, does the South Korean government, the Moon administration, define itself in terms of its vision of the Indo-Pacific and within that, the new Southern policy? I think the fact that many are asking that question, in fact, speaks to the concern that many share about the growing strategic competition between China and the United States and what it means for geopolitics and the wider Indo-Pacific. 
What I can say with certainty, and I'm not trying to skirt the issue, Mm -hmm. is that we're very much open to collaborating with all parties insofar as they help support and strengthen a regional architecture that is open, inclusive, and transparent. And this has been confirmed by President Moon himself. So such an architecture should be underpinned by shared values, including a commitment to democracy, rule of law, and human rights. And in fact, as to where we stand in terms of the Indo-Pacific strategy by the U.S. and ASEAN's own outlook on the Indo-Pacific, we're currently talking to like-minded partners like Australia and the United States on working together to create synergies between the new Southern policy and their respective Indo-Pacific strategies. So in our recent consultations with Australia, for example, we found there could be substantial opportunities for cooperation, especially in public health given COVID-19, economic recovery post-COVID, including digital economy, the Mekong subregion, which is extremely important, and the maritime domain. And we really look forward to engaging with partners such as the European Union once their strategy for the Indo-Pacific is published. Also, uh, given the integrated uh, review just recently released by the UK, it would be interesting to identify areas of convergence for the new Southern policy with a tilt to see what we can bring to the table together. Is the image, do you think, one of complementarity, perhaps more so than actual convergence? Is South Korea deliberately seeking to occupy the non-political space? by focusing on these, if you like, non-traditional security concerns, whether it's water security or pandemic alleviation. You know, water, of course, is a hugely important strategic asset in Southeast Asia. So it's not only just an economic question, but also how does South Korea proactively manage to sustain free and equal access to scarce water resources? Does Seoul have a vision for how best to deal with those sorts of concerns, or are they looking to other countries to set the agenda in that space? And and if I can also sort of add one other sort of follow-up question, which is, you know, one of the big difficult issues at the moment, of course, is Myanmar and the human rights issue. We saw we've seen recent decisions by POSCO Steel, I think, to reassess its exposure in Myanmar. I'm not sure how far that's going to go, and that's a corporate decision. Has the government taken a position on, for example, sanctions? or human rights when it comes to its engagement in Myanmar? First, on what Korea can bring to the table. I think we're consciously trying to see what we can do best, not necessarily deliberately shying away from traditional security issues, but trying to pick through issues where we can offer what's useful to our ASEAN partners. And uh, water resource management, for example, is an area We have a public entity, the K-Water, which has had years of experience uh, actually working in the Mekong region with our Mekong partners to advise on effective water management, for example. And water management, as you mentioned, is an area that has political as well as economic implications for the region. And we are deliberately trying to sort through issues which we feel could benefit our ASEAN partners to the maximum. For example, ASEAN has adopted a strategy to deal with the short and longer term uh, fallout from COVID. 
And their interests really became clear when we were talking to them on issues like public health and digital economy and seeing how would they make recovery happen faster by focusing on these areas. So we feel that we have what it takes to offer uh, our expertise and the best way possible for our partners when we focus on these areas. On the question of Myanmar, it is really a heartbreaking and very worrisome situation. The Korean government has put forward uh, measures regarding the situation in, in Myanmar. And these include suspension of exchanges with the Myanmar authorities. Officers training in the Korean military, for example, have been suspended. It will not be renewed. And we are reviewing our ODA, our Official Development Assistance, Development Cooperation Projects, to see uh, whether some of them merit continuation or a suspension. So um, we are strongly calling on Myanmar to respect the wishes of the Myanmar people for democracy. In respect to corporate interests in Myanmar, these relationships have been longstanding and they have started before the coup d'etat. And we're very cautious because there is the possibility of reputational damage for the uh, companies involved. And in the end, it does come down to a corporate uh, decision making, whether they will continue to operate in Myanmar. But they are very well aware of the sort of damage that they can suffer by choosing to stay in partnership with the military, for example. And I believe that that a review is underway to see how that can be sorted out. The government has not taken a position on this, but we are mindful that corporate activities, although the ultimate decision will come down to the companies themselves, that they will be a reflection of their stance on what is happening in Myanmar. So we are advising Uh, Ultimately, the companies themselves and will make the decision on whether to continue. One other element, correct me if I'm wrong, of the new Southern policy is the focus also on infrastructure. And I wonder again how that meshes or potentially is a source of conflict or rivalry with China's Maritime Silk Road, with its own efforts to develop its infrastructure presence in the region. And of course, again, thinking in terms of the Biden administration's enormous commitment to infrastructure spending, both at home and perhaps increasingly abroad. Will infrastructure be an important part of South Korea extending both its economic reach, but also thinking in terms of perhaps providing an alternative to the type of support that China provides to some of the countries in the region? Well, infrastructure is certainly an area of interest for Korea under the new Southern policy. But if you look at the massive scale of infrastructure projects that China is offering under the Belt and Road Initiative, I think it would be fair to say that it would not be a viable alternative entirely. So what we can say is that we believe infrastructure could be a very useful tool, both economically and politically, for Korea to engage with our Southern neighbors. Uh, But we would have to find a way to differentiate and not just compete in scale uh, with the huge infrastructure projects that China, not just China, but also Japan, they are the number one donor country to Southeast Asia. 
So there would need to be areas of differentiation, whether it's types of projects or areas, specific areas of infrastructure, whether it will be building roads or bridges or some other specific type that Korea really has a forte on. You mentioned Japan, very interestingly. Prime Minister Suga, in his first visit abroad as Prime Minister, visited, I think, Vietnam and Indonesia. And Japan has historically, of course, put a lot of emphasis on its economic and political relationship with Southeast Asia, going back to the 1970s and the advent of Prime Minister Fukuda's heart-to-heart diplomacy. At a time when relations between Seoul and Tokyo seem really bad for historical and political reasons, is Southeast Asia an area of the world in which South Korea and Japan can be partners in a way that perhaps alleviates some of this tension and provides a useful example of how two very vibrant liberal democracies work together in promoting peace and prosperity and the interests of people, which is the kind of hallmark of the new Southern policy strategy? I think so. As you mentioned, Japan's serious engagement with Southeast Asia started under then Prime Minister Fukuda, under the Fukuda doctrine, but it actually goes back even further And Japan's policy vis-a-vis ASEAN is, is, I think, comprehensive. And it's an important part also of its broader strategy to counterbalance the influence of an emerging China. So Japan is a fourth largest trading partner to ASEAN, and it offers the largest development cooperation assistance to ASEAN among the external partners. To be frank, Korea really cannot compete with Japan's ODA or its other projects. We can, however, I believe, work together with Japan and offer our unique experience that is complementary. For example, Korea has experience of a rapid economic growth and innovation, which can be helpful for ASEAN partners. And Korea and Japan share a common objective of contributing to ASEAN's political and socioeconomic development. And I believe we can play complementary roles. In fact, um, Korea is working together with Japan and China through the ASEAN plus three mechanism, that's ASEAN plus Korea, Japan, and China, to support ASEAN's recovery from the pandemic. We collaborated with Vietnam in April of last year to hold a virtual ASEAN plus three summit to devise a region-wide strategy against COVID-19. And that's a good case in point in how we can work together for stability and peace and prosperity in East Asia. In a way, sort of picking up what we were talking about earlier about the Indo-Pacific strategy, it was, I think, in 2019, 2020, August of last year, that the US and South Korea launched their inaugural USROK Indo-Pacific Strategy New Southern Policy Dialogue, which seems to be a good illustration of trying to bridge the gap. And there have been some cases where, I think in 2019, South Korean naval vessels participated in the US-led Pacific Vanguard exercises along with Japan and Australia. But it's not clear what pressure or whether the United States is seeking South Korea to play a more active role, for example, in freedom of navigation operations. And now, of course, we've seen, if you like, Quad 2.0 with the Biden administration and Japan and India and Australia talking about pandemic cooperation. So the Quad, in a way, has moved from being what people tended to see it as more of a formal security structure to one that embraces some of the very specific type of initiatives that South Korea has a comparative advantage in. Is there therefore an argument for saying 
that South Korea should be thinking about joining the Quad. Do you think that's realistic? I think that there is certainly a, a lot of room to collaborate with our partners in the Quad. Whether or not we join the Quad or the Quad Plus formally, I think is, is not a question that can be answered easily. There are a lot of considerations that go into making that decision, and I'm not sure we're, we're there yet. However, as you mentioned, we have been expanding our cooperation with the United States and uh, are continuing to talk with them about ways to expand our cooperation in functional areas that can come together both under the NSP and the Indo-Pacific strategy. And we are continuing this dialogue and we are certainly looking to expand and deepen our cooperation in many areas. And I believe this is really a good step towards an unknown destination, but it's certainly one that really deepens our, our cooperation. We're almost out of time. So I wanted to just, in the spirit of being devil's advocate, focus on the issue of public relations and public perceptions. So last year, I think a poll was carried out in uh, Singapore, according to which 0.9% of Southeast Asian respondents feel confident that South Korea upholds order and international law in the region, by comparison with, I think, about 33% for Europe, 20% for Japan, and 5.7% for Australia. Those are pretty stark numbers. Given the amount of effort that the government has been putting into developing this relationship and the benefits that come from that. Why do you think those poll numbers are so different? Well, I think it shows the fact that we're relatively latecomers to Southeast Asia offering economic, political, socioeconomic partnership. And I think our ASEAN partners still have to get used to the idea that this will be a sustained policy. And, and I get a lot of questions directed to me by our Southeast Asian colleagues saying, do you think you'll still have the new Southern policy after the Moon administration? And I always say, absolutely. This is, uh, we just put a name on a policy that's been there all along, or the importance that we attach to cooperation with our uh, ASEAN colleagues is longstanding. It's, it's really nothing new. And we will continue to work on our relationship in all spheres. As for the numbers, I believe that really shows us that we have a lot of work to do. We have work cut out for us. And in terms of reaching our audiences in Southeast Asia, because we have broad support here in Korea for a new Southern policy, the Korean people feel that this is really a core foreign policy of the Moon administration. And there is bipartisan support across the aisle on this policy. And for us to engage more with our ASEAN colleagues, ASEAN and Indian colleagues, to really have them feel that the new Southern policy is something that we're pursuing for mutual benefits and it is sustainable. And we do hope that we can bring tangible deliverables to our partners. It's something that we will have to work on very, very hard. And last but not least, if I may, another sort of wild card question. You know, we've been talking about the region. South Korea also has a new northern policy. And obviously one of the big issues at the moment, the perennial issue is, of course, the challenge of North Korea. When one thinks of the North Korean economic and political presence 
informal and sometimes disruptive. One thinks back to the assassination of Kim Jong-nam in Kuala Lumpur. I mean, to what extent is there any sense in Seoul that the new southern policy and cooperation with ASEAN offers opportunities to think about relations with the DPRK? I think our ASEAN partners feel more invested in what is happening on the Korean Peninsula, given the events, the unfortunate assassination of King Kim Jong-nam in, in KL, and also the fact that uh, Vietnam and Singapore hosted uh, two summits between the U.S. and North Korea. And I feel that they feel drawn in and they have more of a stake in what is happening on the Korean Peninsula. Now, with the new northern policy that you mentioned, our objective with pursuing the new northern policy is to promote uh, mainly strong economic ties with our northern neighbors, including Russia, Mongolia, and the Tan countries in Central Asia. And by way of linking the Korean Peninsula up in the north with these countries with strong economic ties and bringing in our southern partners via the new southern policy, I think what we're trying to do is really create a network linking Korea with partners to the north and to the south for peace and prosperity. So they are designed to complement each other. And when you look at the two policies uh, in this way, you realize that the new southern policy is really doing a lot better than the new northern policy uh, because there is a missing link in the north with North Korea. But it was the original design of the Moon administration to link up the northern and the southern neighbors of Korea, ultimately to create a zone of peace and prosperity on the Korean Peninsula and in the wider region. Cecilia, thank you. That's probably a great place to end, actually, because in a way it brings us back, doesn't it, to the idea of middle power, the idea of Korea as a pivotal country, linking these two regions together neatly reinforces that idea of Korea literally, not just figuratively, in the middle between these two really important regions. So thank you for sharing your views. Thank you for asking such a a wide-ranging set of questions and for your patience. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and I hope we have the opportunity at some point to welcome you to Chatham House in person. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for listening to this bonus episode of Undercurrents. I hope you've enjoyed the entire series. If you have missed any of the episodes, I would recommend that you go back and listen to them. They're all on the same feed that you're listening to this episode on. We'll be back next week with a regular episode for you. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with the work of Chatham House on our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. Till next time. Thanks for joining us.